Hi, and welcome to this special episode of 21st Century Leadership. If you were expecting to hear from John Knights and Danielle Grant about leading beyond the ego, don't worry, that episode will still be coming up in a couple of weeks. I just wanted to slip this special recording into the current series, as it's on a very topical subject. A few weeks ago, I read a post on the Corporate Rebels blog titled, It's About Solidarity Stupid, Why Avoiding Layoffs Makes Sense. The author, Tom van der Lube, made some great points and interesting distinctions, so I got in touch and I'm delighted that he agreed to share his thoughts in this podcast. Tom, as you'll hear, had an interesting and varied career before co-founding Dutch financial services company, Visi, about 10 years ago, using self-management principles. Let's join the conversation now to hear some fascinating and insightful perspectives. What I'd like to start with really, Tom, is if you could share with us a little bit of your personal story about um, what kind of formed some of the thinking and ideas um, and the values that you've taken with you into the commercial world um, and some of the lessons that you've learned perhaps from your earlier career that you've applied later on. Yeah, I can do so. Um, I mean, as you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a a co-founder of uh, the Dutch company called Visi. We are only active in the Netherlands and we do uh, Morris advice. Um, But my background is a totally different one. So I studied law uh, in the Netherlands and political science. I'm a historian. Uh, I studied in Paris political science and then afterwards in Berlin. So my view on, let's say, if I, if I just take the world of business, is a little bit different one, um, just because of my background. So that's perhaps first uh, something to say about. And in this current situation of the corona crisis, it becomes more interesting because we discuss much more in a broader uh, sense uh, about society and responsibility of, uh, of businesses. We'll come back to that later. And... Um, then, which is probably also uh, important, and uh, I haven't uh, spoken about that in the past, uh, but when I started to do talks and interviews, and then we started to talk about purpose and responsibility, etc., then at the end of the interviews, often uh, when people just went went into this topic much deeper, um, I said at a certain point, it's not about, let's say, maximizing profits, or it's also about responsibility, or it's about um, doing together something with each other uh, in a company. And then I often end it um, with, let's say, my experience, which is nearly 30 years, or even more than 30 years old now, that um, uh, when I was 20, I had cancer. And uh, I only had a a chance of surviving it of 20%. And that probably changes somebody's attitude. And it doesn't matter in what area of society you're active. I mean, I'm in business now, but if I would have been active in another part of society, it also would probably have shaped my way of seeing things. Um, So let's say if you're in a business environment, you, you probably would start talking about Stephen Covey and think with the end in mind and uh, BHAC and uh, what's the purpose of the, of the, uh, of the enterprise. Uh, and if you would be in a, let's say, if I would work at university as a professor or something like that, 
it would be a more philosophical discussion about Socrates, etc. But this probably has shaped my way of seeing things very, yeah, in a very profound way, so to say. So, um, tell us a little bit, bit about what you did before Visi. Yeah, I um, I actually wanted to become a diplomat, and that was all, <laughs> that was also. Let's say I, I studied in Leiden, which is in the Netherlands, and that's, for instance, uh, also uh, their international law started there, Hugo Grotius, uh, from the from the 16th century, because international law is important when you want to do trade in the Dutch. Yeah, they are a trading nation, um, and um, I was always active um, in in UN uh, students uh, societies and this kind of stuff. Um, but then after having having survived my illness, I just found out I'm I'm not diplomatic enough. So <laughs> I'm I'm too my prince my principles are too strong to be able to defend certain opinions which are not mine. And that's probably something you really have to be able to do if you uh, are a diplomat. But I was sent to Paris, Sciences Po, where let's say people who work in the French civil service or, or do a now afterwards study. And then afterwards I went to uh, Berlin and studied political science just after the war came down. I studied, by the way, about uh, a transformation, a planned economy into a market economy. And then I, I made a, um, I ended up more or less by coincidence uh, at McKinsey. I started there, I didn't like it. Uh, and then I and then I became more or less an entrepreneur. I became a financial planner, uh, and it was it was in a bigger corporation. Um, and then I I just did the normal corporate career, uh, and then I also found out now that's that's also probably not my thing. Uh, let's let's um, yeah let's move on. And then it was more or less coincidence that I was responsible in a in a bigger company of. Uh, the Swiss and the Dutch uh, subsidiaries of a financial planning company, which is uh, stock listed in Germany. And then there was a change in the board. And then they decided to close down the, the companies abroad. And then we became entrepreneurs, more or less by coincidence. Uh, and that's probably the second best thing in my life which happened. First was my, my illness, uh, which really was good to get things into perspective. And the other thing was just that we lost our jobs and said, okay, what are we going to do now? Are we going to apply for another job at another company or shall we just go on? And then my colleagues in the Netherlands uh, decided to to continue. And uh, that has become the company I still work for, which started 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. There's some great things in there, uh, Tom. I particularly like the idea of reframing the adversity into opportunity. Um, and you know, I think that's so important in all situations, really, it is that it's how we deal with what happens to us that determines our success or otherwise. It's not what happens in itself. Uh, and as you say, turning um, having cancer into something that drives you and motivates you and changes your world perspective. And the same as same with um, losing your job there as well. Uh, treating that as an opportunity to, to reflect and, and focus. So what I'm interested in around that is that you talked about um, realising that corporate wasn't really what you wanted. What was it about the corporate environment 
that you found difficult? I would say in the end, it's about having rather strong principles. So I would say that the biggest driver of people who start companies is not the money. So at the moment, everything is framed in this very materialistic way of thinking. But to my point, it's totally wrong. I think that most people I know who start companies, they just had ideas or, or, or really got into problems in other environments. And then it can be that they had an idea they want to let's say, work on and, and, and that was not allowed or they were in a kind of um, into frictions with, with, let's say, corporate structures and said, I just don't want this anymore. Uh, so, so I think a lot of people who, who work in, let's say, more political motivated uh, uh, working environment, they just want to do the job. They and, and, and they want to solve something or they want to be productive. Um, and and uh, and that's also something which happened to me. And then I just thought, okay, then at a certain point to be at the head office and being in the board, this is probably, that's not, it's not, a, it's not that you're this, you don't have the decision for yourself. So I think this whole idea of small is beautiful and be able to influence what you do every day. I think that's one of the main uh, things in life most people like. Um, so, and that also happened to me. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the, the thing about Small is Beautiful is that it's the proximity that people have to power. Um, when it's small, uh, then everybody is, is close to the seat of power, whether it's a hierarchy or whether it's a shared uh, power. Um, everybody has the opportunity to have an impact on the organisation as a whole. Whereas in huge corporations, it's very, very hard to, to kind of replicate that kind of feeling, isn't it? And one of the things that I noticed particularly was the amount of talent that was going to waste because people yep. didn't have the opportunity to give their skills within the context of the organisational setting. So um, I think that kind of leads on a bit to uh, to busy and your uh, ideas behind setting up busy um, what were the kind of principles that you came up with and what was your vision for making it different yeah i think it's for instance the, the first thing is that if you start a company or if you if you just say okay let's let's do it on our own um what i find always striking is that when those companies become bigger then the founders start to micromanage themselves. <laughs> so the main motivation is that they become entrepreneurs because they don't want to be micromanaged. And then at a certain point, I would say that after, let's say, 10 or 20 people, they start to do exactly, the, they have the same behavior, which was the reason they, they wanted to become entrepreneurs. And that's something which we noticed that we said, okay, one of the main drivers was not to be micromanaged so we said to each other okay we shouldn't do it ourselves and it's also something which a lot of entrepreneurs at a certain point uh, notice that they that they that they like to build something and that that they want a real let's say into into the business and that they don't want to manage and uh, so so and then the solution was to think about self-organization which is 
let's say, a topic uh, for itself where you can dive uh, into this deeper. But it was, let's say, the main motivation was not to to start a kind of lean or efficiency program. No, it was because we didn't want to manage ourselves. Um, uh, so, and I still think that if I if I talk to entrepreneurs who implement self-organization, it's it's the same kind of motivation. It's not it's not that, that things become more efficient. No, they want to do the things they like most, uh, and they want to stay uh, to that. And then if we had this kind of fundamental self-organization, we always thought, and that's more or less also adds up to that, that we said, okay, let's keep it simple. Uh, uh, because in big corporations, you have a huge amount of values written on the walls. And we said, okay, let's reduce to the max. And we said, and that's also something which which uh, which you see in society uh, in a more broader way. Just let's use the golden rule: huh? treat other people like you wanted to be treated yourself, because that works pretty well. Everybody understands it; it's not complicated. And we said, okay, this is the rule, and it doesn't matter in what dimension: clients, suppliers, partners, doesn't matter whatsoever. Um, and we said. We want to avoid to write handbooks because if you want, if you start writing handbooks, mm-hmm. it becomes so complicated that people start to look up in handbooks what's wrong and what is right. And we wanted to say, okay, if we only have one rule and we said the rest is common sense, and if you don't know what's right or wrong, ask your colleagues, you still keep this, let's say, way of thinking or this responsibility, you keep it in the company. Because what you see, which happens in society, if you talk, for instance, about tax legislation, is that people don't discuss what's right or wrong. No, mm-hmm. they search. They search in the law what is possible. So, and and that's not principle-oriented way of, let's say, organizing uh, a company or society. No, that's right. And I think the whole idea of actually um, tapping into people's sense of what's right and what's wrong which is generally um fairly well developed but often corrupted by the environment that they're in uh, tapping into that creates a huge opportunity to do away with all the um red tape and the bureaucracy that so many organizations get caught up in um and like you say the rule rule book the idea that people do what they're told to do and what it says in the book rather than what they know is right and what happens then is they start to lose their sense of what's right and wrong in that kind of environment um, and lose touch with their moral compass so I think it's so important for us to try to foster um, environments where people can bring themselves to work and not have to to sort of hang their own values up at the door and do what it says in the book so I think that's really powerful, Tom. Um, yes. So what I'd be interested to know about is your um, your journey with Fizzy, how you actually took that forward, and what are some of the um, problems that you came across along the journey and how did you overcome them? Because you know, it's, it's very easy to say, you know, if you go to a self-managing system and process mm. that everyone is going to work to their best and everything's going to be great 
but the actual reality of it is that it's not always as straightforward as that so i'd be really interested to have your perspective on that um we have a, a model developed with a it's a kind of uh flying wheel mm -hmm. and it starts with the purpose um so the goal of the company is twofold change finance and change work and that means change finance means that the financial industry didn't behave very well or still doesn't behave very well so there the goal is it should be more long-term oriented more sustainable um it should make sense uh and and the other part which is important if you talk about organizational stuff is that from the beginning we always said it's about let's say fulfillment so so a company is a combination of people who do things together in our case it's at the moment it's mortgages it could be something else um, um but if you if you just let's say take the golden rule as an example and you want to treat other people uh, as you want it to be treated yourself and you do this collectively you get an enormous empowerment and then you can take the Maslow pyramid or you can take a psychological safety of Amy Edmondson but you create a kind of atmosphere uh, or you you bring your wholeness to to work etc and you have a different kinds of uh, um, ways to discuss this um, but we said okay this should be a place everybody really likes uh, uh, and the idea was to put people first so you have the purpose which is the is the goal of the company and then you have people first the hierarchy of stakeholders and 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 clients come second and shareholders come last and this is a very clear hierarchy and it's it's repeated all the time again and again yeah. which also means for instance in this in these times of crisis suddenly we didn't have to explain anymore why we put people first so the last 10 years we had to explain why do we put people first and not clients or shareholders and then suddenly you have the corona crisis and everybody says oh could you please that's interesting how do you manage the crisis we didn't have to change the hierarchy of our stakeholders because in times of crisis things become very clear and in times of crisis people expect solidarity we expect solidarity in a society and that's why are we are so outraged if people don't behave uh, in a correct manner but before the crisis they also didn't but we didn't discuss it so profoundly so if you take for instance the uk with richard branson as an example the whole discussion about him during the crisis is a totally different one if you see the discussion about about him uh let's say the years before which which gives you a kind of bitterness in a way that that you say okay was this a marketing story or or did he really believe in it so so this hierarchy and these values are extremely important and the longer a company acts on that the stronger those values are embedded in the culture it becomes part of your dna of your or your habits because people live them and they correct each other on those values all the time okay so um that kind of links in a little bit to what i wanted to ask you about was how um how do you ensure that um the values of the organization which is people-centric are then 
carried on with your secondary and tertiary stakeholders outside the business itself? If you if you have let's say this whole idea of decentralized structures, which for instance I always take the state. I live in Switzerland, and which is to my point of view, if you talk about decentralized structures, probably the best example. Um, uh, so which and which I think has worked for centuries. So management is only hundred years old. The way we organize states is. 2000 or 3000 years old mm -hmm. and this this idea of let people decide or give them decentralized power to act and you have this whole idea of autonomy uh, and mastery and purpose uh, daniel pink and this videos which you f can find online easily but it's in the in the end it's not that complicated so if you if you um, have a decentralized structure instead it would be the city or or the neighborhood and if you would give them decentralized power to decide what people in the neighborhood find themselves the most important topic and for instance in switzerland people have to decide themselves about the taxes how they are spent in the village or in the in the city and you have three bills in switzerland so you have a bill for the taxes you pay in the city you have a bill for the canton, for the province, and you have the state tax. You have three different bills. And if they decide, for instance, to renovate the swimming pool of the city, people vote on this. And they, they decide, shall we renovate the swimming pool or shall we, I don't know, put an extra, extra building for the school or I don't know, it doesn't matter whatsoever. But because people decide themselves, they have to to buy in to this decision. So if they, for instance, if they don't vote, you take them the possibility to complain about it. Those people have decided for us. No, you were able to decide on that. And I think this works pretty well. And in the company is exactly the same. So if you have teams, for instance, who themselves are able to recruit or to at least have a vote in this. So if we, for instance, hire in the credit department where four people work, if somebody of those people don't like to hire a person, then the person is not hired. So, so, so you have a lot of kind of these mechanisms, you can see them everywhere in society. If, if a team is allowed to, to decide themselves who joins, and it still me can mean that other colleagues also uh, let's say have a say in this, but if they have a kind of veto, uh, then then you only will have people joining the team where those people already work. They say, okay, yes, we we would like to to have Brett on board as well because he seems to be a nice guy and we will help him. And and it's if it's a little bit <laughs> and and if it's and if it's a little bit difficult in the beginning, then 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 they they feel obliged to help this person. Uh, but if 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 somebody else from the outside says this is Brett, um, uh, you were not you were not allowed to talk to him, but I have decided that he should join your team, then you have automatically this kind of oh let's see who's Brett. Uh, I'm not quite sure. So so these mechanisms solve a lot. Or we have the rotation principle of the team leads, a primus inter pares principle. And then people say, oh, that's very innovative. And I say, mm, it's not so innovative. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Athens 2000 years ago. So 
let's say if I am in this whole self-organization are the lead link or the kind of at the moment CEO of the company, but the people in the teams themselves have a rotation principle and decide who is in charge. For me, it's much easier. Uh, but everybody knows next half year is my turn. So you have automatically a much more smooth and also more correct uh, way of of um, of interaction in in those teams. So I think in the end that's much more natural way of working together. As for instance, people if people work together in a kind of atmosphere uh, where they are not paid, it's a, it's a soccer club or it doesn't matter what or a kind of initiatives. It also works very smoothly, perhaps even more smoothly than in a lot of, let's say, kind of so-called professional business environments. Yes, I think um, th the main thing there is when people have decisions, whether it's hiring decisions or other strategic decisions, whatever, uh, imposed upon them, if they don't buy into those decisions, if, if they think that it will never work, um, then they almost have a vested interest in proving that it doesn't work. So you know, you're really going to struggle to to get any traction. Um, whereas if it comes from them, well, a you saved yourself the bother of, of trying to come up with the decision yourself anyway, uh, and b that they're already bought into the decision because they're the ones that have made it, and they actually have a vested interest in making it work and proving that they've made the correct decision. So as you say, if a new hire is finding it a bit hard to settle in, the team will muck in and support them rather than just hang them out to dry. <laughs> so, yeah, but but also also the opposite. Eh? So if you were, let's say, if you are four people in a team mm -hmm. and you have you have taken, uh, let's say you've decided somebody should join your team and then after a couple of weeks you find out mm, uh, there's no fit, then, then people feel responsible to solve this and they will, they will come to this person and say, are you really are you really sure you like it? Uh, do you really like mortgages, or what's the reason you joined the company? And these are discussions really takes place. And then people, for instance, we had because we we were uh, uh, let's say we got a lot of awards as as let's say best workplace. We also uh, got uh, last week or this uh, last week great place to work number one. We were again, and so and then people applied. To the company and they joined the company because they found it so interesting and self-organization and then they found out they don't like mortgages so which which is a kind of difficult because we edit our That's business so yeah. so so but but you still had the discussion then okay uh brett did you join the company because you like all the other stuff around but but do you really like uh, to advise uh, clients to uh, to uh, to realize this this dream of a of a house or an apartment, and then people just said, and it was not a problem at all. Said, to be really honest, I like everything about the company and your philosophy and uh, self organization, etc. But and to be totally honest, I don't like mortgages at all. And then and it's also solved. So so it's even it was even in a way counterproductive to get a lot of those awards because it attracts a lot of people who like good, uh, uh, let's say companies uh, or, or, or they, they, they are fed up working in other companies, uh, but they didn't think about 
what we are actually uh, doing as a business. Yeah, yeah. One of the problems of success. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, are, we, are, we were a very small company, so I think in general that a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises, they have exactly the same topics we also deal with. So if you have a small, medium, small company in, in the UK, and, 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 and you're just known as, as, as somebody who behaves well, uh, then perhaps you also get a lot of people who want to work for you uh, because they, they are attracted to this, to this uh, yeah, correct way of behaving. Yeah, yeah. And what you were referring to um, earlier around having those difficult conversations is, is very much in line with that concept of radical transparency where... Uh, people are completely honest and open with each other and they don't try to be diplomatic as, as you <laughs> were alluding to earlier, that they, they are actually happy to confront the truth so that problems aren't left to fester by ignoring them and hoping that they'll go away. So what, what's been your experience of that within Visi? Yeah, the interesting thing is that, I will, let's say I'll start with the, the situation we have now, but it took years and years. Um, at a certain point, we let's say we always have a, a, a rather scientific academic approach. So we have a certain problem and then we search for literature and then we try to solve it, but we want to solve it forever. So for instance, we said, okay, if you talk about team performance, you have this uh, Aristotle project of Google and then they found out, okay, if you have psychological safety in the team, then you have a higher performance. I mean, that was not the reason. It wasn't. We're not searching for higher performance, but more, what's the best way of 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 working together in a team? And um, and then and then we said, okay, we should solve this much more radical uh, in a radical way. And then we 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 found a lot of research which was done about performance, um, uh, and 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 coaching or or development. And we said that we really have to split this radical in a radical way. So and then we ended up having a salary model uh, with fixed salaries, but also with, um, let's say, fixed raises every year. So if somebody starts a consultant, you get a certain amount of money. And then 40 years, you get 200 euros per month every year extra. So this whole idea of the carrot and stick is totally solved, uh, but it creates an atmosphere that you know in both directions that there is, it, your feedback doesn't have any consequence, but also your vulnerability doesn't have a consequence. So if you are in a self-organizing structure with a lot of roles and you would say, hmm, I don't know if I will be able to do this, can you help me? People don't have to fear that they, uh, that they will not get their bonus in the end of the year because they have shown vulnerability. But the other way, it's also that if you discuss who is doing what in teams. It's not that you don't have this kind of political way of I, I, I take more, although I'm, I, I don't feel very, um, uh, let's say I'm, I, I'm a little bit insecure, but it makes sense to do much more uh, because if I succeed, I will have a bonus. Uh, no, people have uh, in those teams, uh, they, they, they are trying to find out together as a team to get the best and most efficient way of working together. So people would say, Brett, I think you're really great in doing this. And then you, but you still have this idea of, of, for instance, rotation. And then somebody says, for instance, mm, I don't know if I would be a good team lead. 
And all the others say, just try it for a couple of weeks. Just see how it goes. Because there's no financial implication for anybody in those teams. And then suddenly you see people finding strengths they never thought they would have. Often, for instance, women. So women tend to say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can do this. Men always say, yes, no problem, I can. Uh, and then it's exactly the other way around. And then you suddenly find out that a lot of people uh, are, are extremely capable uh, and, and by doing this get more support and you have, you have totally different way of, of, of developing your whole teams, which is absolutely amazing. But it's also in times of crisis. So a lot of people I, I talk to now, they say that there's enormous boost in innovation uh, at the moment, um, uh, because people are just able to, uh, yeah, to 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 develop themselves. Yeah, yeah, and also I think right now in the current situation, people are working in a different environment to the normal work environment, and I think the normal work environment for most people is quite a sterile one and not conducive to having great ideas. Whereas when they're forced into working at home, um, maybe sitting on the patio um, with shorts and thongs, having a glass of wine, you know, they will be far more creative in that situation. <laughs> so I, I think that's something which is taking a lot of organisations by surprise. Um, so that's obviously a learning curve for them, but I guess you would have known that already. Yeah, it's, what, what you just see, which is a little bit more extreme in these times of crisis is, if you don't have somebody near to you to ask mm -hmm. because you think you need somebody, but in the end you don't need this person, mm -hmm. which in a lot of cases women do, because uh, could you please, what's your opinion about this, etc. And then if nobody is there, that's also, let's say, if you talk about leadership, uh, I live in Switzerland and for the organization, I always said it's best if I'm not there, but you still have this implicit hierarchy. So if you are 20 years older than somebody else, there is this kind of tendency to ask, Tom, what's your opinion on this? Uh, but if you're, if you're not there, people just can't ask you. So for me, the quality of an organization is if you, if you take, let's say, it doesn't have to be the founders, but if you would say, let's say, in, 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 in an, in an, if you talk about, let's say, classical hierarchy, if you would take away the whole board, and then if, if the company, let's say, continues to work well, then you have done it, in, let's say, well. If, 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 if the company doesn't work anymore, it doesn't function anymore, then you have a huge problem. And that's something which, which, is, which is typical. So what you want to solve is you want to, you want to, let's say, to create a kind of system and that's what I always, where I always make the link to the institutions and to the states, and where I always ask, is there anybody who can tell me one of the prime ministers of a Scandinavian country? And 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 I never had a good answer. Perhaps now you know somebody because it's about the Corona crisis a little bit more. Or if if we say who is who is in the Swiss Bundesrat, in the Swiss Bundesrat every year there's somebody else is the chancellor. And Switzerland is always number one or two on, on let's say, a world indices 
if it's about innovation or wealth, etc. But nobody knows anybody from the Swiss government. Because, because it's, it's pretty flat, decentralized, rotation principles. Prima Sinterpara still works in the Swiss government. Mm -hmm. But no, nobody knows this. Because we talk all the time about Trump and <laughs> yes. we talk about uh, uh, Boris Johnson, etc. And, and also, if you, for instance, study uh, leadership and, 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 and the brains of those people, uh, masculine extreme leadership, uh, we know that there are um, some uh, similarities with uh, psychopaths. So, I mean, there's a lot of research done on this. So, uh, you, but it's also what you what you learn if you study states that you you want to you want to take the individual risk out of the game. So, if a company works well, the individual person shouldn't pay a huge role. Especially not the one on the top who thinks that he always has the best solution for the whole company. Or at the moment, you can see for the coronavirus, which I, before the coronavirus, I did a talk for a research conference at the university. And I said, I'm very curious what will happen. My, I will bet on the fact that the US will suffer most. Mm -hmm. And it was taped. So, and I just saw it, let's say a couple of weeks ago. And I said, oh, that's, that's nice. I, 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 I had the courage to talk about this. And, and it's exactly what you see, New Zealand. So women, feminine leadership, much more emotional intelligence, much more team focus. They, they are much better in, uh, in, in times of crisis. But there you see it. Normally you don't see it and it's not discussed. But the quality of the leadership in New Zealand is just far beyond uh, what, is, what is happening in the US or in the UK at the moment. Yeah, yeah we, we spoke about this in episode one uh, with Pippa Malgram and Chris Lewis talking about the, um, the, the archetypal masculine leader um, being pretty irrelevant in the 21st century, um, where those kind of um, heroic capabilities actually can work against you um, when you need to be connected and in touch with your people and with your customers. That, that requires a different type of intelligence, a different type of approach, a different type of leadership. So um, I, I think, as you say, no surprise so far as the uh, countries that have been most impacted uh, are the ones that have the most macho leadership compared to those that are more inclusive. So um, I, I'm aware that we want to get on to talking about your, your blog. Um, but before we do that, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about your organization chart at Vizzy, because that is not your traditional pyramid, is it? <laughs> no, all day, although it's all, I mean, it's a locracy, and everybody who wants to find this an interesting topic, you can just Google Vizzy or locracy, and then you can go into the organizational structure. Um, so um, everybody can dive into that, or and you can also see what roles I have in the company. Um, but the problem with the with the word hierarchy is that a, a locracy or self-organization also has hierarchy mm -hmm. so i always start with the definition which means that hierarchy is the way things are organized or the order of things mm -hmm. uh and 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 it it it, it a locracy i would i would even say or self-organization has a has a stronger or more precise hierarchy because the one who has the role 
has the authority to act on that, no matter where you are in the organization chart, so to say. So if somebody is responsible or has this role and the accountability, then you have this kind of hierarchy or power to, and everybody has to accept uh, this. And you, you also have levels of um, uh, double linking in, 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 uh, in holacracy. So, I mean, if you, if you make an organizational star chart in circles, it doesn't mean that you still have a kind of, a kind of hierarchy uh, in, in, in our structure. And you have then the, the general uh, uh, circle or uh, governance uh, circle where, where I'm the lead link of the whole organization. Uh, and that's what we have changed or adapted and implemented premise into Paris, which which normally doesn't exist in a locracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what I like particularly about your organization chart is that it, it does almost look like um cells viewed in a microscope. You can almost imagine parts of them breaking off and joining other cells. Yeah. And it, it looks much more fluid and dynamic than the traditional structure. And and Bearing That's in mind right. That um, the architects and engineers use triangulation. The sort of pyramid structure is very solid and strong, but it it doesn't flex. Um, whereas That's it, right. it's much more organic in in its design. Yeah, this is what I like. Uh, let's about self-organization. That, for instance, when I have discussions with people who work in big corporations, they always say, "Yeah, does it work when companies become much bigger?" And I always say, "It's an interesting question. It's exactly the other way around." If it's huge, it only works in a self-organizing way because all systems which are complex are self-organizing. So nature is complex, but you also see the body. All the information of the whole body is in one cell uh, or, or, or reacts to that. So, so I find it very interesting, but it's the same, for instance, I mean, I, I, I also study a little bit of economics, but what I find interesting is that uh, on the one hand, we always talk about markets and that these are that that they have self-organizing structures um uh, and then and then if you talk about companies you do exactly the opposite which i would say is communism so or from a philosophical attitude it's it's like aristocracy so it's it's not even once i said in an interview we haven't even uh, reached enlightenment in the management the doctrine. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting distinction around hierarchy there, Tom. Um, and I think you know, it's, it's very easy to kind of have these glib statements that hierarchy um, is the enemy of people's development and self-actualization. It keeps people down and things like that. But actually, uh, in self-organization, if you give teams autonomy, and they can decide how, how to organize them. They, they can set up whatever hierarchies that they want within that context, um, whatever works for them for the particular situation that they're working with and the individuals that are working within that team, um, rather than saying, okay, well, we're going to self-organize and you're going to do it like this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, let's talk about your blog then, because, I mean... That, that was really uh, provocative. It's all about s solidarity, stupid. Uh, why avoiding layoffs makes sense. So um, tell us a little bit about 
what motivates you to, to, to write that particular blog? Um, yeah, the funny thing is that I even would say it's provocative. So I would, I would say the opposite, which is done is provocative. So uh, to act in a not human way, I would call, call provocative. And like also stake, and let's say the, the, the stakeholder uh, discussion is also uh, a very strange discussion. So if you have a multi-stakeholder approach, um, it's uh, for a long time you were um, a kind of uh, left-wing Marxist uh, thinker, uh, but whole history always has been multi-stakeholder approach. So, but if you go to the block, in times of crisis, everybody understands that it's about solidarity. And um, we find it totally normal that, for instance, people who, let's say, uh, are um, sick or something like that, or, or have problems that will go to the grocery for them, or we help them to cross the street. We find that normal. Um, uh, and, and, and suddenly, in times of crisis, we applaud for those people who work in hospitals, we have crucial jobs, etc. We don't like people working in finance, but it's things become more clear. Um, so I would say solidarity is the normal way. That's something which everybody feels, and and because of the fact that people fear to become sick themselves or to be late of themselves, they empathize with this. I would say just very normal um, uh, uh, opinions. Um, uh, and um, in a way, if you talk about, for instance, altruism or egoism, then shareholder value capitalism is egoistic because it only is about you and not about the others. Uh, and that's something which I hope we find uh, out or realize in these times of crisis. But also in the long term, all the systems which survive are always stable systems. So systems which uh, are, are, are not balanced, which means you only take out and you don't give back, they are not sustainable. And that can be climate debate, that can be uh, shareholder value capitalism, and it doesn't matter what it is, but also friendships. So people have a very good understanding if there is a kind of balance in relationships, and, and, and if it's not balanced, you will lose, for instance, your friends. Uh, and in society or in business, it's exactly the same. So if you if you think you can lower the prices of your suppliers every year, then at a certain point, it just it's over yeah. because they just don't want to, yeah, let's say, work together with you. It's a kind of partnerships where people have a very good idea of what's wrong and what is right. Yeah. Okay. So so what you're saying is that solidarity is a, a basic human behaviour. Um, that we would normally expect uh, in civilized society. Um, and um, what I'm interested in then is if you're running an organization which is based on balancing numbers, um, making sure that there is enough in the pot to feed everyone or to pay everyone so they can live, um, how do you manage that when times get tough and you say we should avoid layoffs it makes sense um how, how do you actually do that when times are very hard for businesses 
Yeah, this just to be very clear, I'm not against layoffs per se, but it should be the the last thing you do. So let's say if you own a restaurant and 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 nobody is nobody is allowed to come to your restaurant, and at a certain point, yeah, you have to do something, and uh, perhaps you have to say, okay, let's all quit, and uh, let's meet in half a year again, uh, and and use the money to pay the rent for the next half year. But uh, I would say there is also kind of um, first create clarity that um, the first goal is to keep everybody on board. And uh, if you talk about leadership and, for instance, Shackleton or this kind of uh, topics, mm -hmm. and the, the guy who uh, brought mm -hmm. the people back from, uh, I don't know if it's the North Pole or the South Pole. South but, Pole, yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's what people expect. Uh, but then you also have the golden rule again. So people say we're in this together or hey, let's meet again. Uh, it's, that is this reference also to the war. So it's about, it's about solidarity also in the team. And if you didn't talk about leadership, that should be very clear that the only thing is where you start with is we want to keep everybody on board. We want to get through this together. And we are we want to solidarity is the first thing, full stop. Mm -hmm. And and then you have let's say a practical way of how do you implement this. And then we said, okay, we always were transparent how much money we have and how much cash flow we have. And and then you can say, okay, how many months can we pay all the all the salaries, etc. Um, and then you can you can that's kind of you can say is this management? Yes, perhaps it's management, but leadership is to be very clear on your on your on your values and then the last thing is that it's it's if you talk about shareholders in times of crisis it's our obligation to act first so in the first week when lockdown was there we said first thing is solidarity we want to keep everybody on board second is everybody knows our liquidity we can just go on for a couple of months and we said as co-founders and owners of the company we're willing to put money into the company. So, and that's also something which you see in the public debate that we don't accept companies where let's say founders or owners have a lot of money if they don't put money into the company. So, mm -hmm. which I found it's just common sense. So if you do so and people ask, oh, that's very interesting what you're doing. No, that's just normal. It's not normal to take a lot of revenues out of the company and then you have on your private account, you are a billionaire and then something happens. And then after four weeks, you're going to lay off your people. That's, that's very strange. Yeah. And people in the street, they understand immediately that that is strange because that's why they get so angry. Yeah. And so, I think there are also good commercial reasons for not laying people off unless you absolutely have to, because um, especially if, as you say, you've got everyone involved and collectively uh, worked out a path forward um, then everybody is committed um, but to me um, th there are a number of commercial realities the first one is that when things pick up you want to have trained people who are um, already well versed in the organization that are able to um, leave the company out of the crisis uh, and, and get it back to fitness again um, but the the other big aspect to that I think is that 
if you decide that you're going to go the way of laying people off and then later on you have to hire people again, you've got to go through that whole cycle of hiring them, training them, the potential loss of revenue whilst you're understaffed, whilst you're trying to get them up to speed, uh, the potential opportunity costs if they make mistakes. Um, and on top of that, the best asset that you can have in your business is a group of motivated, committed people who are devoted to getting the company fit again because they are part of that company and they have a vested interest in making sure that the company is successful. So I think there are a lot of really powerful messages there, that you, um, a lot of which you, you make in your blog, uh, but I particularly like your analysis of um, people looking at spreadsheets and saying we've got to, we've got to cut the numbers. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, the way the blog article is written is a kind of rhetoric uh, uh, way of uh, saying if you don't care about people, uh, so if you are a shareholder value driven, then perhaps you also should, should read this article because if you wanted to, to uh, let's say, maximize the profits for your shareholders, you shouldn't lay off people. And then I, I just take research. So on the one hand, companies survive longer if, if profit is not the purpose. That's what we know. Ari de Geus, for an example, is uh, quoted there. The one who invented more or less uh, scenario planning at Shell, which is not a Marxist organization, yeah? the oil company. Uh, so uh, also family-owned businesses are often do better in the long in the long term. And you have all those. I mean, hire and fire is the most expensive way of developing your workforce because you start at zero all the time again. So. What I found very funny is that um, I, I googled uh, yesterday evening and I found a report of the IMF uh, where they explained the German model of Kurzarbeit. As if you, if you, and Kurzarbeit is not even translated in English. So Kurzarbeit means that you keep everybody in the company, but you don't fire the people. So instead of, let's say, laying off 30%, everybody works 30% less. Which means that you can, uh, if if you have different different waves of of let's say economic, how shall I say this? So if you if you have times where where you have less possibility or less revenues, you just lower the percentage of people working, and then afterwards you compensate this again. So, but it means you can just Google this IMF uh, report and just say that, for instance, in the continental Europe, this is institutionalized. Denmark at the moment is written a lot about. So then the state says, before you lay off people, we, we pay this indirectly, because if you lay all those people off, we also have to pay them, and it makes much more sense to stabilize our economy. And IMF reports, so it's, not, it's also not a socialist uh, uh, society uh, which writes this. Mm -hmm which I find very interesting. So what, what, I, what I always find amazing is that on the one hand, you have scientific research and you have a lot of articles in the Harvard Business Review. And I would say those people who read those articles, why don't they apply this theory or scientific proof in, in practice? That's what I don't get. But it's the same with bonuses. 
So you can read a lot of articles that is counterproductive. And I would say people who read these Harvard Business Review articles, a lot of people are working in the financial industry. I would say if I've read this article and I go back into the company where I'm the board and say I've read this article, it's counterproductive, let's skip it. And I would go to HR and say, we have to talk about this because I read it's counterproductive. So, and here it's exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, Tom, just to wrap up then, um, looking back on um, the last 10 years or so with with, um, Visi, if you could sum up, um, what do you think is the most significant, um, the thing that's made the most significant impact in the success of your organisation? That's difficult to say. We're just a very small company. Yeah. So um, I think we're just one of the examples of, sm- of small, medium-sized enterprises just just using uh, common sense. A friend of mine always says common sense is the next superpower. So it's not it's it's not that difficult, but it's it's difficult to to let's say stay close to your values and to your principles and act on on this together because people know very well what's right and wrong. But to walk the talk and uh, and and also sometimes then then act on that uh, and and go for the long term. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably uh, just a general thing. But I can't just take one example which is decisive. But it's also because if you are if you are in with a very long term perspective, you don't care that much about if things take half a year longer or a year longer. I and mean, we don't have. We don't have shareholders uh, from private equity companies who ask us every quarter uh, on the PowerPoint sheet uh, how many people we have hired or something like that. Yeah. I mean, if we find the right people, we hire them. If not, we don't hire them. So I, I like it makes it much easier. The, the idea that in nature, all is accomplished, but nothing is rushed. And I think if we apply that to, to business, it would make a huge difference. So um, fantastic, Tom. I just love that that quote that you gave <laughs> just there. That uh, common sense is, is the next superpower. So I think perhaps we'll close with that thought. Um, so thanks very much for your time, Tom. What an incredibly interesting and clever guy. He certainly challenged my thinking and some of the assumptions around how business works, or very often how it doesn't. I love Tom's idea that. Much accepted business practice is contrary to what is natural, and making hard-nosed short-term decisions makes no sense when viewed from the outside. I hope it's given you food for thought too, and cause for you to challenge your own assumptions when confronted with tough decisions in the weeks and months ahead. So that's it for this episode. Do be sure to join me next time to hear John Knights and Danielle Grant discussing Leading Beyond the Ego. Goodbye until then. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast, or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy, just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.